0: All right, Jack. How are you feeling about the economy nowadays? Economically, I've never been good with an economy <laughs> of words, but uh, financially, it looks as That's though not true. <laughs> it, financially it looks as though there may be some manifest changes in the supply of capital, both to buy things from people and to invest in things. And if I can hearken back to something you said multiple times over the course of the last couple of dozen episodes. You know, the investment in cybersecurity firms in general and the valuations they've gotten have been like, and I quote poorly, taking wheelbarrows full of cash and burning them in the backyard. And the great Holly Studwell is going to, for us, put up a picture from an article that I came upon from our friends at Crunchbase, which is entitled Cash is King as the VC Spigot Slows. And they must have dipped deep into the Justin Fimlaid portico of images because there is a guy with a fire extinguisher putting out a pile of cash in the backyard. And our thanks to the three authors, Chris Matinko, Sofia Contara, and Marlies van Rumberg. Again, this is dated April 26, but I think it provides a good space to start this discussion.
1: Yeah, putting out a, a pile of cash that is on fire. Yes. <laughs> putting that fire. Yeah, so I guess this this is kind of the, the genesis for this episode. <laughs> I just reading through this, I'm like, did these these people actually listen to like what we what we previously <laughs> talked about? Like this is this is this is like super weird to me. Like everything that we've talked about, in some cases, like verbatim, even like the imagery of this is exactly what we talked about like months ago.
0: Yeah, it's a fact. You know, we we had talked about the fact. You know, really recently that the seed rounds were getting larger. We had talked about the follow-on rounds and the valuations were getting sort of remarkably larger. In another article in Crunchbase, I saw a stat that I thought was pretty interesting where the reporting showed that in conversations with a couple of startup founders, they had seen over the course of like a two-week period, the proposed pre-money valuations for their companies drop by 25 to 40% after having been issued the term sheet. So let's think about what that day in the life feels like. Hey, Jimmy, look at us. We're valued at $500 million. We're going to go take $100 million. And we're only going to lose 16 points in the company for that. That's awesome. And our post will be like $600 million. And then the investors come back and say, yeah, we're thinking about that. And yeah, not so much. You're actually only worth $300 million. And if you want that same $100 million, well, you're going to have to give us a quarter of your company. And it changes everything. And your post is going to be less than your pre would have been had we closed on the initial term sheet. I hope that's okay with you, right? And, you know, you and I have talked repeatedly about the expectations that these investment firms place on the companies to spend the capital that they've given them. You can expect if people are out there getting term sheets, they're sort of running up against it in terms of needing that next round of capital that they're expecting. And they're probably spending at a tempo and a volume. That means they're going to need a fair amount of capital to continue on with those plans. So, man, that is a very, very difficult corner to be painted into.
1: You get to the point where you don't have any option. <laughs> right? like, if you want to keep your payroll intact and you want to keep people employed. And, and by the way, you've got you know people with families and livelihoods and mortgages mm-hmm. and all this other stuff that are kind of counting on these dollars. I, I don't know. It's like, what what option do you really have? So let me ask you, actually, I, I've got a couple questions, but let me let me ask you the first one here is, so at what point do you think a founder or someone who's kind of in the middle of this journey, they just get diluted down to the point where they just kind of say, F it, you know, there's nothing left. It's been like passed around and it's so diluted and there's so many people with their fingers in it. And now, uh, you know, I've got, multiple different bosses. We have like so many people who feel like they need to have a say and want to have a say and need to have an opinion on like the, I'm using like air quotes, but board of directors, <laughs> right? Like do wanted you just say like, F it, it's not worth it. I'm just going to start over
0: somewhere else having lived through a little of that, not at the scale. I've got to tell you, Justin, I think it's a little bit like boiling the frog, right? I remember when I took the first round of investment on my first company. So this would have been, I think it was, I'm going to say mid 2000, I had this meeting, uh, mid, maybe mid-March 2000. And there was a Great quote by a fellow I was talking to, his name was Glenn Bressner from Mid-Atlantic Capital. Really great guy, really, really smart. And we had sort of a heart to heart over dinner one night, you know, about valuation, this and that. He said, listen, you know, it's up to you as the founder to be setting your valuation that you're comfortable with. And, you know, as investors, we have to decide if we are, you know, in the same place. But I'd encourage you never to argue over the price of champagne. It was a great quote. And the idea was, what's the difference between, you know, a $6 million pre and an $8 million pre? if you're hoping to sell for $100 million, right? It's like, meh, right? Just You'd be much better off getting the right investor at the right valuation and get you the support that you need because at the end, everyone will be super successful. And so I think Glenn's commentary and what I took from it was super constructive. However, right? That is the first step, right? Because then the second round comes up and they're like, well, hey, how about this? And they're saying, but you know, if we put that 50 million in, if we value you at 150 million, just think your half of what you had before is now worth three times what it was before the investment. Funny money, but three times. Like, oh, maybe I'll do that. Because in absolute dollars, if you believe in the validity of the valuation, I just did better. And so now the next investor comes and says, dude, party hat, you're a unicorn, right? (laughs) And so now you're a unicorn. And now you're half of a half of a half of what you started with is worth twice what it was worth, like the last time you're invested in. Oh my goodness, and look at this, I'm worth 10 times as an individual, what I was worth when I started this thing out. It's awesome. And what ends up happening to your question is that when that all falls apart, when you realize the impact of participating preferred, or there's a massive downturn like we're seeing now in some of the valuations, suddenly that decision I made in the second round or the third round or the fourth round, which I thought was okay because my absolute dollar value was better, even though my percentages were smaller, Now it's like, wow, my percentage is smaller and (laughs) my absolute value is much smaller too. And oh my God, if I don't get over a certain threshold, I'm getting nothing. I'm gonna get a swift kick and they may give me a swift kick before I even get to the exit because maybe I'm the reason why it didn't make it big. right? And they need an excuse to their own LPs. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think it happens often that the founder says by sheer virtue of the fact that they've been diluted, they're like, oh, I don't own enough to be into it anymore. Because frankly, startups, you've done it successfully. You know, I've stumbled my way through it a few times. It's a its a vocation, right? You're doing it. You've got people around you and customers that you respect and to trust you. You're going to stay with it. You're going to hang with it unless something catastrophic happens. So I don't see a lot of people punting because they get diluted too much. But I think it doesn't happen... In this sort of incremental way, I think there's a point where the valuation kabuki dance falls away and you suddenly realize like, holy crap, I don't own much. And the thing that I'm building, if I owned a lot more of it, it'd still be pretty good, but it's not what I thought it was.
1: Yeah. Like bottom falling out of the market. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me ask my other question here. We saw... A company, this is uh, I don't know, it must, must have been a couple of months ago at this point. The big billboard on Times Square that says we've raised over a billion dollars in funding. <laughs>
0: like, I think the round was a billion dollars.
1: Yeah, which is also interesting because I I honestly I don't even remember the name of the company, but I, I do remember like that that's a big credit card bill that they were advertising up on that right on. <laughs> on the board. So like what what happens to companies like that now where the valuations are starting to fall out?
0: So right now, they're so happy. I think it was Securonics. I think they're super happy they took that check because even with inflation, a billion dollars in the bank, that's pretty awesome, right? You can (laughs) can live through a lot of pain and suffering with a billion dollars in the bank, right? I think the people who are going to be most hurt by this are people who were midway through the funding process at a Series A or a B, or even like a Mez round who were expecting to get a super high valuation from investors and were super hoping to get enough money to get them to the next big stage. They're not going to get as much money unless they're willing to, to your point, dilute the hell out of themselves as a company. So I think it's those folks who were close to a round or even had term sheets in a round who are going to be most hurt by this because when you have got a term sheet on your desk, you've already presented your plan for spending it, you've already you know, told your team what's going to happen, you're already ramping the hiring to accommodate the growth, and now something bad's going to happen and you're going to have to you know, truly, truly pivot. If I can give you an example, Justin, in that same article that we were talking about off of Crunchbase, they had five examples of what some companies you know, are doing in a bid to conserve cash. You've got, um, in India, an education technology startup called Unacademy. Uh, they cut about 1,000 jobs this month to conserve cash. There's an e-commerce startup called Fast. They laid off 450 people after raising $100 million from investment, and they had annual revenues of about $600,000. Youch. Uh, in a completely different side of the world, you had Glossier Cosmetics firm, valued at $2 billion, just laid off a third of its workforce. Home-buying startup, Knock. Laid off half of its workforce and scrapped its IPO Instead, said raise a little cash. And lastly, Hyperscience, which does automation software, laid off a quarter of its staff and they've raised about $300 million from venture investors. So I think what we're seeing is what these folks are doing is they're like, uh oh, fixed cost, wipe them. And unfortunately, the, the dominant fixed cost for a lot of these folks are, are bodies, humans.
1: Yeah, it's usually a sizable line item on the PL, humans. Humans are expensive.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, if I could ask you a question, right? So you've grown a company that both invests in improving its integration, its optimization of technology, but it also has bodies which are delivering the services. right? And so you always have a relatively straight line from the revenues that are going into the company to the value that's being delivered to the client. How would you react to this style of a change in the perspective of what the company was worth? In our current world, or if, if I was in like one of these positions
1: where we we're forced to make cuts.
0: Yeah, I like, I, I want the comment from the, in the current world, because the answer is going to be awesome. And I think there's a lesson to be learned here.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure it's a super sexy answer. really, But I mean, the most kind of like bare bones level is everybody that we've hired performs a critical role within the company. And we don't hire them unless they can fulfill said role and achieve the outcome that we expect by having them here. We don't have the luxury of, you know, being able to have, you know, extra people hanging out just in case we need, like, work to be done. It's like everybody's got to paddle, you know, on in the boat and, and, like, everybody's rowing in the same direction. And, like, it's not a luxury we've ever had and it's not a luxury that... I'm accustomed to. And when you're worried about PL and trying to stay in the black is, you know, those are things you got to pay attention for. And it's hard. Like the hard thing about it is you have to make business trade-offs, right? Of saying you can't do 10 projects. You can't do five projects. You have to pick, you know, the three that are most important and then you have to wait till next year to take on the other ones. Right. And it's, it's tough to say no, but right. it's a necessary reality if you're trying to remain profitable.
0: And, and that is exactly the answer I was hoping for, but I didn't want to like lean into it too hard. Because if I look at these same companies as they were looking out for how much money they need, they weren't saying how much money do I need to get to my next stage, to build the next project, to deliver the next bit of value that the client needs, which is more or less the way that you've continued to grow this company profitably, right, and expand its business. Instead, they sort of said, how much money can I get? Right. And then they went from, how much money can they get to, what should I do with it if I can get it? And how can I create a, I'm going to say a credible, but highly optimistic plan for the way it's going to be spent to grow the company into some behemoth. Right. And some of those will work and most of them won't. And I think that the pain and suffering we're going to see are in folks who were betting on the optimistic, you know, three heads in a row, flip of the coin, Right. And these were not people who took enough money to execute to a vision that was focused on the customer's success, right? And the customer getting what they need and a relatively organic uh, style of growth based on customers getting what they want, which is what you just described perfectly about how you add more bodies and more tech to support what the customers are actually asking you for. You know, maybe a year ahead, sure, but not. Three years ahead, I want to be dominating some new marketplace that I'm going to generate with that same bundle of cash. And so that's why I think that you're sort of you're like your sanguineness about the change in the economy is sort of based on the fact that you never bought into the fact that. Folks would look at a successful security firm who's growing at 40 or 60% a year and is already profitable. You didn't immediately say, hey, wait a minute, where's my party hat? I'm a unicorn, right? You just said, all right, what I got to do tomorrow? Who do I bring on? How do I keep satisfying the customer? And I think that if we can take and make a recommendation to some of these other companies to take on that same sort of intellectual discipline, that intellectual rigor before they take on money and then spend the money, then probably they'd be a lot better off and would be feeling a lot safer in the current environment.
1: Yeah, the, the business hygiene aspect of all this, I don't know, to me feels pretty important. <laughs> I mean, I, I sleep pretty good at night in the current configuration. And, you know, just kind of doing it the other way. Just for me personally, it was a personal thing. I would not be able to sleep very well at night with that pressure and stress. So, and the, you know, the nice thing about like my practice today is like, I'm not worried about the economic downturn <laughs> one bit. You know, we're going to... We're going to keep doing ourselves. We're going to keep doing what we've been doing all along. And we're going to be just fine. The economy is like the last thing I'm worried about right now.
0: There's probably like a wonderful lesson in there for, and we know because we get notes from them, from some of the newer cybersecurity companies that are just coming up, right? Who have questions, who ask questions like, hey, you know, how do I insure my MVP? Or, you know, hey, how do I present my value proposition to customers or to investors, what have you? You know, I think that there's a lesson here for some of those new folks who haven't yet you know, had enough traction or visibility to make the mistake of believing in the overvaluation, right? That same firm, That told you that the company with no revenue, or that the company we just talked about had six hundred thousand in revenue, um, the company has limited revenue and suddenly is a unicorn, or you know has a fifty million dollar pre-money going into a twenty million dollar seed round. You know, realize that those same people, as capricious as they are with that high level valuation, can equally capriciously decide, no, I really meant ten when I said fifty. And that's going to be a real dent in the way you do your business planning. So I think for new companies, there's a lot of insight to be gathered from what you call the business hygiene piece of it.
1: You know, I think the lesson that I would kind of offer (laughs) anybody listening (laughs) and who actually cares, if you're humble about how you kind of value some of these things and use common sense, I don't really think you can get into serious trouble, right? It's when you start to get out over your skis and you start listening to what everybody else is telling you. And even though maybe common sense says like, that doesn't seem like it makes sense. Um, if you're having that feeling like your gut's probably right. And by the way, like some of these super high valuations. Yeah. I mean, they, they could benefit you as someone who's trying to get started, but they really benefit the investor right they benefit someone else a lot more right And so there's a lot of motivation behind it and when the Reaper comes to take their pound of flesh, they don't really care too much about <laughs> about you they just want their dollars back and you know like just looking at some of the companies you listed off earlier here, these are companies that raised a lot of money mm-hmm. so fastly 100 million let's see what Glossier did Knox 70 million. A hyperscience $290 million. I don't know, man. When I look at some of those numbers, is like we could build some pretty impressive things for like fractions, <laughs> fractions of that. Like you just don't need, like, having done this, having done it firsthand, speaking to someone who's done it, you're in the exact same thing. Like, this is more money than you could spend in a fiscally responsible way.
0: Agreed. And, if your company is relatively new, let's say you're US based or you're um, UK based, and you know you've got a limited group of customers who love what you're working on, and it's pretty awesome for them, particularly in cybersecurity where it can be so geographically sensitized, right? And bespoke per geography, you know, you can see the investor coming, in going, "Oh my gosh, you're just in the United States, Amia." And going into the European Union, the EU will be wonderful for you. And Asia PAC, so many smart buyers, let's go. And you're taking massive money to expand broadly, thinking mistakenly that the wonderful thing you built will be wonderful for people in a lot of different regions. And you're going to invest to support all that growth. And that's where a lot of that cash is going to go. And if they don't all play out, ouch, right? That's sadness money. Right. And, you know, as opposed to taking a more deliberate approach, what does it mean to be really great at security in various regions in Asia-Pac? What does it mean? What's different between Germany and France and Spain and the UK if I want to go into Western Europe? Right. All of them are different. And taking that time as opposed to saying, I'm going to take all this money and that then my returns to my investors will be based on being able to capitalize on those markets. It's just one example. It could be, I'm going to add a new technology, I'm going to add a new platform, I'm going to add a new capability, I'm going to hire end new salespeople. All of these things are bets, right? And when you take on a massive investment, you're sort of suggesting that you go into the roulette table, right? Which is a really, really chancy proposition, and you're not going to go with five dollar chips, you're going to go with five hundred dollar chips. And even though one, one would argue the risk is the same, the impact of making the wrong choice is really, really different, especially if the way you got those $500 chips was to give away more and more and more of your company because you can't give it away again.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Just losing more chips faster. Right on,
0: man. Right on. I think this has been a, a good discussion, right? Talking a little bit about cyber, talking about the effect of investment in cyber, because I think all of the investment that we see across non-cybersecurity firms, as reported in Crunchbase, you know, it, it is only worse or only more evident in cybersecurity market space, right? And that the economic changes are sort of catalyzing a uh, rationality amongst investors and sort of a reevaluation in terms of the parties who need the investment. So, I'd recommend to them, to the companies who are looking to get invested, who have their Series B or C coming down the line or emerging from their seed into the Series A, figure out what you really need, right, to achieve the goals that will make you a great investment in a more conservative environment for the next round. You know, don't hope for the economy turning quickly or yours being that super special idea that gets everybody seeing, you know, rainbows with pots of gold at the end. And try to create something you feel is credible to a skeptical marketplace in terms of valuation, uh, because I think you'll be much better suited over the course of time. Yeah.
1: We should end on that recommendation. Cool. If you need
0: cybersecurity help, you
1: just uh, sage investment advice, wise investment advice, you can reach at poend.newharbersecurity.com and we'll get you on the next one.